Uh, I don't think so. Nope. Is that better? Oh, there I, There we go. Okay. Good. Okay. Before we... You can start looking up Mark chapter 6. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. You can open up your Bibles. You can start to get there. I had to laugh. I was saying to someone, someone's like a friend from back home. They were like, oh, what are you teaching right now? I'm like, oh, I'm going through a series on Mark. They're like, oh, yeah, where are you at? I'm like, well, I'm in Mark chapter 6, but I number all my messages. And I'm like, run message 22. So I'm like, it's going to be like a 55, 56-part series by the time we're all the way done. I've never done that before, but it's a little bit ridiculous. Okay, first thing I want to do, um, as we're settling into the scripture this morning, Cave Quest coming up August 16th to 19th. We need lots of help. Last week, this little clip went around and lots of people signed up. Super awesome. Thank you very much for that. There's lots of different ways that you can volunteer from promotion to decorating, helping out with crafts the day of, games the day of, snack, helping with the barbecue on Friday, being a group leader. It takes a village to really pull off a great VBS, and we want to have a great VBS. We're going to be starting an um, online marketing campaign very, very soon. It's going to be going out to all of Nelson, kind of hitting parents with kids in this age group. We'd love 50, 60, 70 kids to show up. We'd love for 50% of them to have never gone to a VBS, have no contact with church, have no idea who Jesus is, and be coming in uh, totally fresh, and we would love the opportunity to uh, introduce them to the message and the gospel of Jesus. And so I'm just going to pass this around. I'm going to start over here with Justin, and maybe we'll go up, down, but just make sure you get a chance to, I know not everyone was here last week, so I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to sign up for that. And last week, I totally, in the midst of a lot of things that were happening, I totally forgot to share my heart, soul, mind, strength goals with you guys. Did you guys notice that last week? You didn't even care. Yeah, I noticed it. I was like, after my nap on Sunday, I was like, what is going on? How did I totally forget that? So um, here's what I have uh, put on the schedule for this month. Uh, This is just my way of kind of challenging myself to grow as a disciple, not just in the ways that come naturally to me, but heart, soul, mind, and strength. Relationships, my life of prayer, uh, deepening my knowledge of scripture, and actively serving and helping in tangible ways. Because I think that every Christian comes naturally by some of those things, and then we tend to avoid the other ones and think, well, that's for other Christians to do. But Jesus said, our primary calling is to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of it. And so every month I just try and challenge myself in new ways. So heart, I'm going to have fun with my family this month. We're going to kids camp, then family camp, then a week's vacation in Calgary. And so really looking forward to just having tons of fun with them. Soul, uh, early morning devotionals. I'm getting up earlier and earlier, probably because I'm going to bed earlier and earlier. Um, and I've been trying to like force myself to go to sleep. And Heather, my wife, was just like, why don't you just get up and do devotions? Like instead of fighting, trying to go back to sleep and squeeze out another 45 minutes or an hour. So I've started to do that, and that's been really, really fruitful. Uh, specifically, I'm just trying to steep in the gospel of Luke. I haven't read Luke for a long time. I'm listening to it. And uh, I'm just going to be listening to it as many times through as I can over the course of July. I'm going to be reading three books, Unparalleled by Gerald Wilson. Uh, Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller. And then Think Christian just produced a free PDF uh, collection of articles. You can get it. You can just uh, Google Think Christian Seeing God in Science. It's a series of articles written by Christian philosophers, scientists, and philosophers of science on how do we reconcile the specific revelation of the Bible with God's general revelation of creation. And I haven't read any of the articles yet, but the lineup of people who have written are pretty pretty smarty pants, people who love Jesus. So I'm really looking forward to that. If that's of interest to you, you can check that out too, and maybe we can talk about it. I don't know a lot about 
that whole sphere in, in terms of deep stuff in terms of science, but I like this is kind of written for an introduction that anybody can kind of begin to wade into those waters, even though they're very, very deep. And then there's going to be lots of opportunities for me to practically serve and help behind the scenes at KCBC and at family camp. So I just want to be aware of those opportunities and, and jump into those. And lastly, before we get into Mark, when I get back at the end of July, we're going to do a short little series, end of July into and through August, called Choose Your Own Adventure. And the premise is really, really simple. You're going to tell me what you want to talk about or learn about as it relates to Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity. In our summit newsletter that went out on Friday, there's a little anonymous survey. It's anonymous. You can ask whatever you want. I can't trace it back to you. And you can submit a question. And and they're kind of just set up questions like, something I've always struggled with is blank, or I've always wanted to understand this, or how should Christians respond to whatever? So you can fill out as much of that as you want. It's only five questions. It might only take you, you know, two or three minutes. But I'm going to see if there's any pattern there, if there's any uh, um, themes and common themes that kind of bubble to the surface. And I'll try and work through as many of the big ones as possible. And then I'll usually take one Sunday and just kind of hammer through some of the ones that don't really demand a a full Sunday to answer. They're just kind of quick. But um, that, uh, yeah, that link to that survey went out in the Summit newsletter. So just be watching for that. And you can go back in if you haven't looked already and click on that and move into it. So it's usually a really, really fun series because you just never know what you're going to get, and you never know what's going to happen when you show up on Sunday. So, And I've already, li- I've already uh, looked at a few of the responses, and they've just been really, really interesting, great questions. So this is, um, it's, it's going to be really, really fun. Okay, Bibles, Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. Short passage today. Jesus has just come from the other side, the Decapolis. He went over there. He um, confronted and healed someone who was demon-possessed. The village says, get out of here. You're interfering with our idols. You're interfering with our economy. We liked our setup. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. They drive. They ask him to get back into the sea, just like he threw those pigs into the sea. So he comes back over to the other side. Jesus left there, meaning the Decapolis, and went to his hometown. That's Nazareth. Remember, he's lived in Capernaum when he was older. He moves there. Now he's going back to his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up as a boy, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Okay, let's walk through that passage, uh, just kind of verse by verse. Verse 1, Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. This is Nazareth. Jesus likely spends conservatively the first or a good chunk of his early life when he he returns uh, from Egypt. So 13 to 16 years, ballpark. This is a community that knows him well. There's all kinds of debates of how big Nazareth is. The, the, The upper scope at the time of Jesus is 500 From what I've read, most scholars say it's a much smaller town than that at the time of Jesus, 200 to 250. I've even heard as low as 150, so maybe 
three times the size of this whole church is just a village. So it's very small. These are people who know each other. Their lives overlap in every significant way. They've known Jesus from knee high to a grasshopper. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. We've seen this already in Mark. Jesus goes to places. He's a revered rabbi. He's invited to speak and to give interpretation of texts. And many who heard him were amazed. And that word amazed is the word ekpleso. We talked about that in uh, Matthew 13, right? The teacher of the kingdom uh, you know, brings out of his storehouses treasures old and new. He brings out isn't as forceful a verb as you really should have there probably, I would argue. Ekpleso means, pleso means to strike and ex means out. So strike out. Um, so if you think of like baseball, like a player trying to like get a pitch and hit it, the player strikes out. He totally whiffs. He can't contain the skill of the pitcher. We, in our vernacular, we would say like mind blown. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. They weren't able to fully take in, not because it was nonsensical or because it wasn't coherent, because it was too robust. It was too rich. It was like having this amazing sumptuous feast before you and um, not having the appropriate palate developed to be able to take in all the nuances and layerings of flavor. So they struck out in their ability to fully take in how Jesus was teaching. Verse 2, where did this man get these things, these insights? What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Isn't this the carpenter? Right? They don't call him rabbi. Everyone else does. I, rem- I remember when Jesus was learning from Joseph back in the day. Like, this is, isn't this just the carpenter? And it's a not-so-subtle dig. Isn't this Mary's son? Jewish people, you identify who you are based on your father. Isn't this Mary's son? That's an allusion to, who was this guy's father? Because remember there was a whole issue around Mary's pregnant, but she's not married? Isn't this Mary's son? It's a not-so-subtle dig. We're already seeing in the text, or Mark would have us see, kind of this smug, self-righteous scorn, this distancing of the people from Jesus. They call him the carpenter. They don't call him the prophet or the, or the rabbi, which almost everyone else where Jesus goes at least gives him that honor. Mary's son is a kind of derision towards Jesus. And it says they took offense at him. And the word offense there in the Greek is scandalizo. It's, we get scandal from it. They were scandalized by Jesus. And in this context, it means a coming together of shock and anger. What are they getting angry at? And he's come in, he's taught, and they're like, he's obviously brilliant. Where did that come from? And that just says kind of like the room is scandalized by him. They're offended. Remember the core of his message, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the kingdom of God has come near and that people must repent turn from the way they're living and embrace God and his kingdom, but God's king. 
And God's king, Jesus, not so subtly, reinforces again and again by telling, by showing and telling, is him. So Jesus is giving them a hermeneutic, a way of understanding their entire worldview and the entire scripture, which is him-centric, Jesus-centric. And for some people and f- today, and for a lot of people here, that was scandalous. Jesus, we've known, we all know each other here. We're good Jewish people. Who are you to tell us we should repent? Pagans repent. Bad people repent. We're a good God-fearing community. Sounds a little bit, Jesus, like you've become a little bit too big for your britches. Like, who do you think you are? Coming in here to people that you know, to people who know you, and tell us that somehow this massive, the culmination of the ages is happening, God's long-promised deliverance is happening in and through you? They, they couldn't handle it. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. I remember very distinctly, and I know some of you are in the same stage of life, where you, you've gone off to school, college or university, maybe one, two, even three years, and you've grown massively. You've been exposed to a number of things that have kind of expanded your worldview, and you've developed as a person in ways that are really, really accelerated. And one of the phenomenon that you'll experience, or most people do anyways, is that somewhere between your second and third year, you feel like you have a critical mass of, I know a lot of stuff, and I'm actually pretty wise given all that I've taken in. Because relatively speaking, it feels like the last year or two or three have been, uh, there's been more poured into you than in the last 10. And you can go back into, if you ever have the experience like I did of moving back into your home, even just for a summer, you can have that awkward experience where everybody in your family unconsciously often still treats you like the kid who left home on that first day. But you think, that's not me anymore. I know a lot more now. I have more insight. And I remember how frustrating it was to go back into my home and feel like I was still being treated like a child, even though I felt like I had really grown up. I felt like I had really made some huge steps into adulthood, and yet people around me couldn't quite make the same leap. Uh, I, they still saw, and maybe all parents have this, I don't know, but you know, maybe all parents kind of have this emotional, psychological ceiling where after which it's hard to see your kid is older than that. For maybe for some it's 15 or 20 or whatever. But you know, that's not exactly what's going on here. But there's some of that dynamic in place. It's kind of the ballpark. Jesus has come back to his hometown. He's called them to repentance. He's invited them to rethink their theology around him. And they're like, I don't know. Like, I remember when I used to take care of Jesus in, like, the synagogue nursery. Like, Jesus was in my youth group. Like, we used to work on building projects together. Great guy. But I don't know. 
who does he think he is? It feels a little bit, and maybe it felt to them like Jesus was kind of like posturing like he was holier than thou. I mean, he obviously was. He was literally holier than them. But they feel the offense of that, right? When people act as if they're looking down on you. I don't think Jesus ever um, postured out of that way. But they're picking up on that. They're like, who, by what right does he, he can go to other people, but we've known this guy our whole life. That's another clue, actually. Um, I would argue that it's very subtle, but I could make a case that that is one almost airtight reason why you can guarantee the Gospels aren't made up or fabricated. If you were making up or fabricating the Gospels or editing, editing them later in order to make the story of Jesus more compelling, wouldn't you have made people in his hometown come out of the word work and say, yeah, we knew from the start he was super special. He was raising people from the dead when he was six. He, was walking, he used to go to KCBC camp and run out under the water. We knew something was different with that Jesus boy. We don't have that. We have a town that saw Jesus as a God-fearing, good Jewish kid. And again, I think that speaks to the authenticity of the Gospels. You would not fabricate and you certainly wouldn't leave in his hometown and people, relatives and his own family saying, I think he's out of his mind, like Mark says earlier on, or here where people are just like, mm, who does he think he is? That doesn't, that doesn't even make any sense. So just a little apologetic aside there. Verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Mark says he could not do miracles there. Matthew, in the same account, in uh, ch- um, chapter 13 says Jesus did not do miracles there. He, he wouldn't do miracles there because of their lack of faith. In verse 6 it says Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. All throughout the Gospels, lots of people are amazed. It's mostly people who hear Jesus' teachings. Sometimes it's miracles, but often they hear his teachings. He's showing and telling the kingdom and they are amazed. But there's only two times in the entire New Testament where it says Jesus was amazed. People are almost always dumbstruck by the glory of Jesus. But there's two times where Jesus is dumbstruck. This is one. Does anyone know the other one? When Jesus heals the centurion's servant, And it says, Jesus was amazed at his faith. He said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. It's the only other time. So there's two times where Jesus is amazed. Once, in the presence of great faith, where the centurion says, you don't even need to come to my house. I understand how authority works. I have people under me. If I say to them, go, they go. And what he's saying is, I know that you have power. I know that you're an authority, Jesus. I believe that you don't even have to come to my house. You could just say the words and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, wow, this is coming from a Roman pagan. That is faith. This guy knows who I am. So Jesus has great, is amazed in that context, and here's the other one. These people, because of their lack of faith. Now, lack of faith there, we, this is really, it's a subtle distinction, but you have to really get this. This is important. The word that's used in the Greek for lack of faith is apistia. A meaning lack of pistis, faith. Apistia. It's a faith. It doesn't mean little faith. It's not like Jesus came into the community and they're like, hey, you know what? I was going to do some super awesome stuff here. I wanted to both show and tell the kingdom, but you guys kind of had like a level two out of 10 faith. And I kind of either demanded or needed a four out of 10 at least 
Otherwise, my powers don't kick in or anything like that. That is not what the text is saying. It doesn't mean they had a little bit of faith. It means they had a pistis. They had non-faith. Some translators will do a better job, I think, than saying lack of faith and say unbelief. These were people who were operating out of a heart that was resistant, they were skeptical, and they were hard-hearted. They weren't saying, my faith is weak, but I want to believe. They were like, "Mm, I don't think so. Prove it. I'm not buying it. I've come here predetermined to shut this thing down. I'm not looking for reasons to put my faith in something. I'm looking for reasons to disbelieve. It's unbelief. And this is important because in some circles, especially where faith healing is emphasized, sometimes the inference is that people aren't healed because they have insufficient faith. Well, if you only would have had more faith, maybe God would have broken through or this good thing would have happened. And they look at passages like this where the wording is lack of faith as an example to kind of buttress their theology. See, Jesus couldn't or wouldn't do miracles because of their lack of faith. But I think that's an absolutely horrible uh, misinterpretation of the text because Jesus always responds and does beautiful things in terms of teaching and healing in the, pro- in the context of faith, even if the faith is very, very small, even if the faith is very meager. Jesus can work with one out of ten faith. Jesus can't work, nor will he work, with anti-faith and unbelief. Jesus will not work in a context where someone's like, okay, well, you, you do some tricks, Jesus, and then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to believe in you or I'm going to follow you. No, that's a non-starter for Jesus. Because Jesus isn't there to be a show or to prove himself to you. He's there to proclaim and, and to announce the kingdom. And in the Gospels, Jesus always responds to faith, even if it's weak. But he doesn't abide people who are looking for reasons to disbelieve. He doesn't necessarily call them out. He just walks away. They, they just don't get a miracle. They, just, they don't get the blessing that comes from even saying, I don't have much faith, but I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, this is hard for me, God, but I, I, I trust that you're the Messiah. See, for Jesus, the power of faith does not lie in the amount of faith that you possess. It's in the object of your faith. That's a really, really important distinction. The power of faith isn't how much faith you have as like a, some kind of uh, self-psyched up initiative. Oh, I got a lot of faith. I'm, I'm, yep, I believe, I believe. I'm psyching myself up. That is nothing. That's not where the power of faith comes from. The power of faith comes from the object of your faith. If my house is on fire and there's a cardboard cutout of me like this in my driveway and my kids have to jump from their upper window to me, it doesn't matter how much faith they have in that cardboard cutout to catch them. They could have, from a level of faith perspective, 10 out of 10 faith. I totally believe. I'm trusting in my dad. I'm trusting in that cardboard cutout. I've eliminated all impure negative thoughts. I'm completely aligned to the truth, and I believe and I'm declaring and whatever else uh, self-help talk you want to do, and they jump out that window and the cardboard thing collapses. They're going to break their arm or their leg or worse. But if I'm standing in the driveway and they have to jump out the window, even if they're scared, even if they're like, oh, I'm, you know, what's going to happen? But they, if they have enough faith to jump, it's going to be okay. Because it's, it's not the amount of faith that we have. It's what we're putting our faith in. 
And these were people who didn't want to put any faith in Jesus, didn't want to listen and receive at all. And so Jesus doesn't do miracles. Because he never does miracles to um, procure belief from people. The miracles almost always happen after someone has said, I trust you or I'm coming to you because I believe you can do this. And he says, your, your faith has healed you. You've put your faith in the right thing, not, oh, you had a level 8 out of 10 faith. I'm going to do something for you. It's you've put your faith in the right thing, in me. So even if you have a little, I can still do something powerful with it. So the village's unbelief stops Jesus from performing miracles, which is their loss, right? I mean, that's a pretty sad you know, hometown. Could have had a hometown advantage with Jesus, and they totally blew it. But notice verse 6 tells us Jesus continues to go around teaching about the kingdom of God from village to village. Jesus doesn't allow unbelief to stop his primary mission, which is to proclaim the good news. Now, this is a short text, but I think there are four questions that arise out of this text that I would leave us with. One of these, I hope, hits home to us, to, to you. Uh, but I think between the four, I think there's got to be something here for all of us. The first question is this. Does Jesus offend you? Have you been scandalized by Jesus? Have you been scandalized by his gospel? Because Jesus and his gospels are scandalous, especially to people who kind of think they have it together, who like to think of themselves as good, upstanding, moral people. Jesus and his gospel centers around themes of repentance, being born again, sin, salvation, the idea that you can't save yourself, someone outside of you has to save you. Those themes don't play nice with a high view of the self. Or they don't play nice with a high view of self-righteousness, where I can make myself righteous. I can justify myself, thank you very much. I mean, imagine if you were a good God-fearing Jew, and someone comes along and says, yeah, it's actually not enough. The, the sin goes deeper than that. You need complete transformation. Imagine if you were a Jewish, Jewish leader under the cover of night coming to Jesus and saying, I know you're from God. I'm trying to figure this out. And Jesus says, yeah, you won't be able to unless you're born again. You have lots of religious training. You know stuff, but God w wants to do something even deeper than just new ideas. He wants to give you a new heart, a new purpose, a new life. I don't care whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a skeptic, whether you've been a Christian for one year or for 40 years, if Jesus is someone who never gets consistently under our skin, if he's not semi-consistently ruffling our feathers, if our primary associations with Jesus are that he's quaint and he's nice, then I'm, I'd be suspicious that we're following a caricature of Jesus and not actually Jesus. That would be my concern. Because following the real Jesus, reading the Gospels consistently, steeping in them, trying to practice them, exposing ourselves to Jesus' life and message, it will upset you. And that's regardless, again, of whether you're a believer or not. Timothy Keller says it like this. If your God never disagrees with you, and I would say if your God never scandalizes you, if your God never, if, if the Jesus that you follow never offends you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. When you're growing as a Christian, you're being consistently, not, not continually, but consistently, 
challenged by the love, power, truth, teachings, and gospel of Jesus. And so if you're not experiencing a kind of offense or discomfort, if you're not reading and saying, whoa, 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 did Jesus really say that? I need to love my enemies. I need to do good to those who harm me. My response to those in power who would seek to exploit me is to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. That's offensive. I don't know if I like that. Jesus' Jesus' views on marriage, that's offensive to me. Jesus' views on uh, morality and the Mosaic law, ooh, I I don't know if I like that. See, if we're steeping in the Gospels and if we're following Jesus and the Spirit's doing his work in us, it will scandalize us from time to time. That's one of the evidences that we're actually following Jesus. Second question. Is the posture of your heart smug, self-righteous unbelief? Please guard against this. This is very, very dangerous. It's the most spiritually dangerous place you can be. Because when you have a smug, self-righteous sense of unbelief, hesitancy towards Jesus, resistance, um, You've, you're very close to putting yourself in, this, in a situation where you're unable to receive the things that are necessary for salvation. You're literally blocking off the source of life and the author of life. And when you operate out of a smug, self-righteous worldview, well, there's kind of a truism, right? Um, all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, we see what we want to see. There's a saying, you know, none of us sees the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And you kind of see that here, right? I mean, think about this. These people have just heard one of the most complex, interesting, probably humorous, like the whole roller coaster of emotion, one of the best teachings I've ever heard. And they acknowledge it. Wow, that's pretty brilliant. This is pretty amazing. And they go right into... Where did he get this from? Isn't this guy just the carpet? They go right into scorn. They totally miss it. You see it with the religious leaders too, where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath and the healing, someone's life being totally transformed and opened up because of Jesus, it doesn't even register on people's radar. They're just upset at Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. That's all they see. They're, see, if you, have a, if, if you have a posture of unbelief in your heart, you will just look for reasons to not believe in Jesus. You will... You will, you will filter out truth and grace and, and you'll just look for things. Wow, isn't this guy just a carpenter? You'll just ignore, you'll conveniently ignore. You'll have um, uh, selective, you know, have these filters that self-selects out things that, you, that might challenge your view and it puts you in a really, really dangerous position. Unbelief usually manifests itself with a small view of Jesus, Right? They hear this amazing teaching. They don't see miracles, but they've heard about them. But they're like, nah, he's just a carpenter. I mean, that's the heart of unbelief. Instead of having a high Christology, a high view of Jesus, you're always looking for reasons to say, eh, was he really God? Was he really? I don't even know. If, even rabbi is a bit of a stretch. He's just a carpenter. He's kind of a Nazareth kid made good, nothing more. That's why it's so important, as we were saying earlier, to be constantly praying in your life, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see all of you. I don't want to be blind to what's right in front of me. Jesus can't and won't do miracles in the context of unbelief. This is why skeptics and unbelievers, people who are anti-belief, apistis, have a very hard time with Christianity because they're like, well, if I saw a miracle, if this happened, or if God proved himself to me, then I'd believe. 
First of all, it's just not the way it works. And second of all, that's just not true. Because even if something were to happen, you would look for a reason why that actually isn't from God or whatever. And you're like, that's not true. Absolutely. Look in the Gospels. There are people who saw people be raised from the dead. And they were like, oh, it's by the power of Satan that that happened. An unbelieving heart that is anti-Jesus is very, very dangerous. And unbelief spurns the supernatural. The supernatural in our lives happens. God does amazing, beautiful things in response to a faith, even if it's weak. But unbelief is dangerous because it cuts us off from the source of life. Number three, is there someone in this community, in this church, in your house, who you are failing to honor? Jesus talks about, you know, in your, in your hometown, when you go back to it, prophets are honored everywhere, but not in his hometown. And that's true with a lot of people, right? A lot of people are honored outside of their family or outside of their small village or their small circle, but the people inside, familiarity breeds discontent. You kind of see the fault lines of people more the more you're exposed to them. And it's easier to just fail to honor people that we should. As a noun, honor in the Bible means to esteem someone, to value them greatly, to greatly respect someone. It's, it, it's, it's like love, but it's different in the sense that it's saying, I want to treat you as if you're massively important there was some celebrity or important political figure that was coming to our home and staying at your house, you would know instantly, you'd move instantly into a mode of honoring them if they were going to stay at your house. You know what that means intuitively. But we often don't do that to people who are in our lives. But we're supposed to. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's a call to the church. Ephesians 6.2 to children says, Honor your father and mother. It's a reminder of one of the Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment with a promise that your life may be extended in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 1 Timothy 5.17, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. I wanted to throw that one in. I thought it was appropriate. That's good. Never hurts to proclaim the word of the Lord. But is there someone in, in this community in your workplace, in your marriage, in your home, that you're failing to properly honor. Last question. Do you know rejection? Have you experienced the kind of rejection that Jesus in his humanness would have experienced? Maybe from your direct family, maybe from someone else. But do you know rejection? And if you do, if you know the sting and the hurt and the wounds that come from having people who are supposed to love you actually turn the tables and simply cut you off and hold you at bay and um, push you away, then I want you to know that this Savior is for you. And Isaiah 53, and you'll remember part of this, um, this comes from the same section that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he was baptized. He was reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the same section that he was reading from, it says this. It's a prophecy about a coming one, someone who's called a man of sorrows. And this was written 600 years before Jesus. as a prophecy to, about Jesus. And it said, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. And he was familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
we failed to honor him. John 1, 10 to 12, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, that's the gospel. Right? Look at the cross. Jesus is experiencing shame and humiliation and rejection so that we can experience acceptance and wholeness and healing. Jesus was exiled relationally from everyone that should have embraced him so that you and I can be restored to the one from whom we were exiled from because of our sin. Jesus' own family practically disowns him, and yet through his death, Jesus creates a new family for spiritual rejects like me and you. If you know rejection, if you know the place of wounding from a friend, lover, a family member who has rejected you, then I want you to know that Jesus can heal the wounds that exist in our souls, the wounds that come from scorn and dishonor and rejection. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6, as you, speaking to Christians, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Jesus, when you speak, when your spirit speaks through your word, we can be scandalized in two ways. We can be scandalized because we hear your message and want to disbelieve it and want to shut it down and want to shut it out. Or we can be scandalized by the grace that we find in it. We can be scandalized by the love. We can be scandalized by the cross of you coming, dying, and raising to new life, inviting us into a new family and a new hope. For those of us who have wounds that are deep relational wounds that come from rejection in whatever form, God, um, would you give them a boldness to go to you this week, even today, God, and seek healing from one who knows what it means to be rejected? But would you be their refuge and their strong tower? Would you be a place that envelops them with love and grace and begins to bring healing to those places of rejection? And would you welcome them into a new family where they will never be put to shame again. We ask this in your name. Amen.